Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello and welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. Thank you so much for joining us again today. I'm going to be chatting to David Gumbel, who is an author and speaker on resilience and well-being. He's been a teacher in Surrey for over 20 years. He's worked his way up from NQT to Hebship, holding many positions of responsibility, including NQT mentoring along the way. Throughout his career, he's endeavoured to develop a team to nurture an individual teacher's career and to protect the well-being of children and staff. The Resilience Project is a natural progression to this, and he now offers a diverse range of opportunities to get a conversation on resilience started in your school. And just before this really timely conversation, here's a quick thank you to our sponsor. Thank you to the National Association for Primary Education for their long-term support of the Education on Fire podcast. To get a free e-copy of their professional journal, Primary First, please go to nape.org.uk forward slash journal. That's nape.org.uk forward slash journal. Hi, David. Welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. Resilience and well-being is something which we've covered a lot, obviously, recently. I think that's partly through to the pandemic. But I think one of the things that's really come across is the fact that it should be at the heart of everything and probably always should have been. So I'm really excited to be chatting about exactly where you're fitting into all of this. So, yeah, welcome. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I'm excited, too, to talk about a subject that I'm passionate about. And I think that COVID has raised the profile of mental health and resilience and all of that uh, but I believe that it was there before and it will be after the pandemic so uh, yeah happy to share my ideas around that and where I fit into that jigsaw. Absolutely I saw a very interesting webinar recently where they said oh we're going to have to make sure that we've got well-being at the heart of the curriculum to support our children and someone said but surely that should have been there to begin with. <laughs> That's how it's always been the case. Just if, it, if it's only just coming into everyone's sort of frame of mind now, then maybe we'd slightly miss the boat. But anyway, let, let's hope it was a it was a positive awareness for that particular person. Anyway, I think it's a it's an awareness, but it's also an allowability. And by that, I mean that um, we've got the excuse to talk about it now, whereas before it was a little bit poo pooed, or whether it was there was a stigma attached to discussing this issue. I think that's been removed now because we can almost blame it on COVID, even if it isn't COVID for that particular individual. And so it's given us the excuse to have a conversation about how we're feeling. And I think that's a really, really positive thing for children and adults. Yeah, I completely agree. So tell me, what's the Resilience Project? Where did it come from and what are you trying to achieve for it? Well, the project came about as... Uh, um, so I was a head teacher of a primary school um, in Surrey um, and that was a fascinating journey and a fascinating thing but the resilience project came about because I saw that there was a disconnect between what universities were producing in terms of teachers and what was going out into schools and where on this journey were people leaving this wonderful profession that I call teaching and so I wanted to understand that and initially I thought that was around um, resilience. Resilience was part of the new three R's. Resilience, recruitment and retention as I, as I, saw, that, as I saw it at that point. And I, I wanted to understand it more. 
where is resilience in all of this? How do we develop it? How do we get it? How do we keep it? And importantly, how do we get it in teaching so that we can stop as many teachers leaving the profession in such an early stage of their career? Um, and so that's where the, re, uh, the Resilience Project idea came about. I then approached my local teacher training university and said, let's do something together. And they were very keen to have a conversation around that. And so the Resilience Project started with going to a conference up in Birmingham and presenting the ideas that we had. And that turned into a project, working with early career teachers through their first year of teaching and offering them one-to-one -one listening, one-to-one -one opportunities to talk about what was burdening them at that point and just articulating that burden and sharing that burden so that they felt brighter and lighter as a result. And the Resilience Project was essentially that at the, that point. It's developed now from NQT to early career teachers to coaching head teachers and so on. But that's where it started. And what was your kind of sort of, I guess, not an aha moment, because you may well have had an inkling of this already, but from, from what the teachers had sort of been trained and where they were sort of heading into their profession, what were their concerns? What were there any sort of themes that came through which you thought, yeah, I thought that might, <laughs> that might be the case? Well, the, 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 the spark was really that there were, um, it was difficult to get a teacher, to, uh, it was difficult to get a number of applicants to, when you had a job, when you were going out for a job when I was head teacher. And I just wanted to know why. But what I've realised is that we do fantastically well at so much of mentoring and supporting NQTs, as they once were called. Um, but what we missed was the human element, Mark. What we were missing was that human touch. How are they as a person? Are we addressing them as a person that's trying to be a teacher? And what the Resilience Project was trying to do was to directly address the human being trying to be a teacher and I think that's the distinctiveness of the resilience project we've got lots of schemes of how to teach and how to do behavior and how to do assessment but we don't have many books about how to look after you <laughs> how to make yourself sustainable do you have well-being practices that we're going to keep you going beyond October half term beyond year one, beyond year five, and then into 26 years of, of teaching like I have and still, in, <laughs> and still enjoying it. <laughs> and I guess that's the thing, isn't it? And it, it comes up time and time on the podcast. It's the fact that people talk about when they were children in school, you know, the, the teacher they remember the most isn't the person that taught them maths really well or they really enjoyed history for the subject it's the fact that they there was a there was a connection there they saw them they spoke to them they understood their life they had a you know a human to human connection in some way or another and, and it seems perfectly straightforward that that still needs to be the case as we get older and especially when we're vulnerable which I guess you really do feel when you're starting out in your profession I completely agree with that and I think that teaching is about relationships and um that's what I, that's my mantra when I'm talking to early career teachers. It's about relationships with the children. It's around relationships with your peers. It's around relationships with parents. And I think we're missing that. I don't think we're spending enough time on building those relationships because you're right, Mark. 
the teachers that we remember are the ones that believed in us, gave us time, connected with us in a relationship, human way. And the problem that we've got is that as the curriculum becomes ever busier, we're losing the time that we used to have to make those connections. And so they're kind of staccato um, or sometimes they don't even exist because we're too busy doing literacy or numeracy or and so we're missing time and we're missing that relationship building and I think that is where we need to just press pause take a moment and when we talk about a catch-up curriculum let's catch up by just offering more time to talk about health mental health and well-being um, and connecting with these young people that we're trying to teach like I say, at the moment, it's a very particular time in, in, in terms of sort of just coming, well, coming out of the pandemic, but certainly um, schools obviously being fully open and everything again at the moment. But where do you find that time to do those things that you just spoke about? Are there any certain um, tricks is not the right word, but sort of ways of sort of finding that pocket of time or having that breath that you need for yourself or where you know you want to have that conversation with a with a colleague, but you're never quite sure the best time to do it. I've got some things that you can sort of share with that to give some people some help. Absolutely. I think it's kind of um, small stuff done often. So iteratively, that you're just taking that moment, you're taking that time to connect with that person. So say it be a student, it's about proactively giving them an opportunity to talk about resilience, talk about well-being in an open way. And that can be through kind of at the end of register. So take the register and then have a little conversation about resilience and mental health, which is what the book's trying to do. And then in the afternoon, just as they come off the playground, is another good time to have another conversation about mental health and well-being. At the end of the day, when they, you know, take a chunk of 20 minutes that's seen as potentially dead time, well, let's activate that time. Let's have a really good articulation around how we're feeling, looking forward to tomorrow. And I think that's a really important thing. And I think in terms of colleagues and working alongside colleagues, it's taking that moment to make those connections that potentially might not be about work, but it's building relationships that then over time will build into a trust relationship and trust relationships are what we all crave for isn't it Mark because trust relationships are people we can lean back into when we need them most um, and that's about resilience as well isn't it it absolutely is and um, trust is, uh, is something which has come up a couple of times both in terms of observation and also in terms of that kind of collaborative community feel within schools and, and how that comes across and it's always incredibly important and, and the thing that I really, I really liked about what you said there is is the fact that it takes it out of a subject matter. I think it's very easy in a curriculum like I said which is very crowded where you've got sort of bullet points that you're hitting in terms of sort of subjects and all of that kind of thing and well-being to some respects seems to be like another bullet point you have to cover and I think you know that idea of kind of 
when you're talking about how are you feeling, you know, how did this particular thing affect you today? Or, or like I say, it's those small little things where you're actually doing well-being in inverted commas, but it's just about, that's just about life. It's about that connection. It's about that kind of idea. And, and certainly as a musician myself, I often get asked, you know, how can we bring well-being into the, the music curriculum? We need to cover this. We need to cover that. And my answer is always, you're being a musician. You're teaching music. That is well-being we're taking ourselves into a world which is unlike any other you, there doesn't need to be anything more than that as it's going through yeah i think that creativity is definitely part of well-being i think um i think music is a really good way of channeling our creativity and channeling our emotions and letting it out into the big wide world and i think that we've all got creativity inside of us but sometimes that creativity is suppressed potentially by the curriculum and the way that it's <laughs> the way that it's structured but I think we've all got it inside of us and we all need to find that within ourselves and I think that's important but dialogue is the way I think that we need to go about this it's about loosening up those conversations it's about allowing a dialogue to take place and for teachers to feel confident that they can broach the topic in a very informal and a very light-hearted way. And that um, if they can do that, then the children will come on board. The pupils will engage with it because they're not caught off guard, but it's a softer approach, it's a lighter approach. And I think if you top that up with the idea that you can talk about others more easily than we can talk about ourselves, <laughs> we can talk about, uh, other people having issues around relationships or creativity or workload or what or stress so i think a deflection to someone else whoever that may be is a good thing yeah and and in, interestingly i had a conversation this morning with the, the montessori institute and 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 they were talking about the idea of it of sort of what they believe is kind of weaving a philosophy and a way of being into life as it were into teaching um and i think that's a really good way of of thinking about how you show up in your school the way you have those dialogues that conversation you know asking a colleague about something that which isn't particularly work related it just kind of creates a whole different way of existing and i think the one thing I've, I've learned a lot over these sort of 200 odd episodes that I've recorded now is it's about how you show up and how you do it and you bring people with you um, and like you say everyone wants that human connection so as soon as you're more human and you open that door you're going to draw that out of other people and that just then sparks doesn't it throughout the whole community. Absolutely I think human warmth is what we all crave and human warmth is what we need to have in abundance in schools um, what the difficulty for teachers is to provide that human warmth whilst also teaching the curriculum that is needed or the catch-up curriculum that is needed that's going at an exponential rate. But actually, we need to be able to do that with human warmth and we need to give children opportunities to talk and dialogue that's not structured in many ways. It's unstructured, uh, but it allows them to articulate feelings and emotions and build a sense of community, build a sense of team. So a long, long time ago, right at the very beginning of my career, Mark, um, someone, someone was doing an inset day 
and talked about, you know, what do you do on that first week? And he, I still remember he said, we are the Tigers. So, you know, it's a building of the community. Yeah, we're not, we are Tigers. We are the Tigers, as in we, this, this, these are our rules. This is how we're going to go about it. And he genuinely got the idea that we need to do this stuff, this human warmth stuff, this relationship stuff more often because it matters. It matters more than everything else because if we're in psychological safety, as I call it, if you feel safe in that environment, you're going to learn. <laughs> you're going to want to learn. You're going to be able to learn because your reptilian brain is not looking for danger. It's relaxed and a relaxed brain is going to take a lot more in than an anxious brain. Absolutely. Um, and let, let's talk about that. You, you said your career has been some sort of 26 years sort of NQT, I know, through um, five schools or so and into a headship and in, in, into now obviously with your books and your project and everything. Um, but have you got some sort of insights about how how you came across all of this at different points in your in in your career and and I, and I, and I guess from a historical standpoint as well I, I remember I think it might have even been episode one or two of a podcast I was chatting to Lynn Hannay um, and I knew her in two regards when she at the time she was the chair of the National Association for Primary Education but she was also director of a school where I was teaching um, drums and percussion so we had a good relationship on top of two different ways um, and, and and she was sort of talking to me about um, HMIs and how when she first started it was about that kind of putting your arm around supportive have you tried this these ideas might work these might not how are you getting on how can we do that and then sort of walked me through that whole sort of iteration into what Ofsted is now effectively how it sort of moved between one and the other um so yeah I'm, I'm interested in sort of how not from an Ofsted point of view but in, in terms of your sort of historical perception of how that career has gone in terms of how that kind of warmth and those relationships um are different at each sort of stage of that career absolutely well I, yes i have had a five school career um up oh, to date um and i remember vividly doing something called circle time and i was trained in circle time by a, a practitioner who was trained by the one of the leader the leading knights of that of that era and circle time was ahead of its time in many ways but it was about sitting down and talking about stuff emotions and when we feel angry this is what happens and this is how we deal with it preemptively proactively and i i was trained in this stuff and i and we found the time and i remember the person that was leading it said to me when we said oh we didn't have time to do it they said well you haven't got time to not do it because if you do it you'll catch up all of this time after you've done it and then going back into that kind of psychological safety but I think there was more time then. We had registration that was long enough to talk to children other than just ask them to call out their names. I think the curriculum was less stringent then than it is now, or certainly had more opportunities to weave and diverge from the curriculum. So I think the tightening of curriculum is one way that it's changed or morphed or moved. Um, I know you didn't want to talk about external and inspectorate, but that certainly has changed the picture in terms of trying to do the right thing according to that inspectorate. And I think that's kind of distracted us from what we know is uh, what we want to do <laughs> to something that we might not want to do. 
and that is a distraction, I guess. But over the course of my time, I've still believed genuinely and still believe now that there's ample time within the school day to put well-being in. There's, because it's, as you say, it's turning up in a human warmth way. <laughs> it's having the attitude of, I'm wanting to recognise the 30 children in my space and the, the world in which they've come into. So as a head teacher, Mark, I used to stand on the gate and welcome every single child into the school by name at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day. And I described it as beeping them in and beeping them out. <laughs> and for me, that was vitally important because I think they're coming with baggage and they're going away with baggage. And I just wanted to mediate that and beep it out. It didn't take long, 15 minutes of my day, but it made a massive difference to those human connections. And I think teachers could beat their children in and beat their children out um, at times during that day. And those conversations would be hugely valued by those in that space. And I think I think that point that you made about you don't have time not to do some of these things, I think, is really, really insightful in terms of, you know, we, we just know that the moment where you feel that stretch and the fact that we can't and this and that is when we're already on the cusp of kind of getting too far down that lane of kind of ah oh, right okay you know I sort of you know from my point of view it might be an exercise I haven't got time to go for that run or play that match it's like yeah but that's the time I really do need to go and do it you know that time I haven't got time to organize this it's when you know that you need it and I think understanding those things and I think that's why these conversations are so important because I think people can relate they can understand and and just know what's the reason I wanted to sort of have the podcast in so many ways is the fact that it just means that you can hear other people ah oh, yeah that's i recognize that that's part of my so even if you don't have that community within your school which i really hope that you do there you know there is a community out there and of course with forums and groups and various things i know lots of people sort of find those connections now but i think hearing it in that sort of personal way with that sort of experience really makes a really big difference i think recognizing it in yourself and recognize it in your classroom is really vitally important and uh, and I think that giving yourself the authority to have these conversations is just so important and right at the beginning we were talking about you know Covid's given us the excuse well let's use the excuse that we've now got and let's use it for everything it's worth as in I need to do this because of Covid I need to do this because we need to have a conversation in class around it. Then have these conversations and building good habits, but also take notice of the difference in the pupils when you get this going. Because what you'll notice the difference in the pupils is that they will be more relaxed. They'll be happier, more contented. Those relationships will build they'll think and perceive, and rightly so, that the teacher is listening. Maybe not to them directly or explicitly because they've deferred it to, oh, uh, Sam in class X has, uh, you know, is feeling stressed right at the moment, but that's actually them. And they've articulated it out in a safe environment. And that articulation has really helped that individual come a long way in a very short space of time. So it's bite-sized chunks, little bits, 
iterative steps towards a wider confidence about who they are and how they can manage their own well-being. Yeah, and I think when you hear that, when you understand that, when you walk through the school gates as, a, as an educator in the morning, and if that's the thing that's on the forefront of your mind, then your day is going to be very different because your your first conversation with whoever that happens to be is going to be very different. And, and that sort of snowball effect in that positive way is going to, yeah, going to be outstanding, really. So take us through how the book's put together what how how's it structured how how would people sort of learn some some more of these things from you from from how you've decided to to put it all into onto the page as it were yeah well it, it was a wonderful process to kind of put it onto a page and it was a real challenge to put it on the page in a way that was going to be effective and was going to be useful so i decided to go for 26 stories um very short stories very short snippets of time so it's designed to fit in those 10 minute blocks after lunch the 10 minutes after break so it's not a long extended period of time but it does start a conversation and it starts the conversation by using a metaphor and it connecting to something that they already know about or they think they knew about but actually they didn't know about so it might be Paddington Bear it might be dinosaurs, it might be face painting. And they're relaxing into learning about what these, these wonderful things. And then there's a twist halfway through each episode or each chapter or each of the stories where it connects the thing, the Pennington Bear, to mental health. It suddenly starts to say, OK, well, Pennington Bear couldn't stand on his own two feet and that's why when they made the toy, they had to put welly boots onto Paddington Bear in order to allow him to stand up on his own two feet. And it was a very personal thing for Paddington Bear, and that's why he's got his initials embossed on the sole of his shoes. So it's a very light-hearted way of linking it to a topic of, uh, a topic of interest. And then it connects into a little activity that they could then do so there's a little art activity at the end of each of the 26 chapters that they could take home for homework, they could do there and then as an activity in class, that then connects it to their world. It then connects it to something tangible that they can do. So they go away with a little chapter, they go away with an idea, they go away with a had, in, had a conversation. And that's the purpose of the book, is to engage them with curiosity, engage them with curious stories of kite flying and uh, treasure hunting all things that kids like and then that leads into this most important provocation of the most important conversation that we can have in schools with how are you feeling not superficially how are you feeling i'm fine how are you feeling and that's a different conversation yeah, absolutely, and I and I I love the I love the way you talked about that in terms of having having the structure and, and and it's those starting points, isn't it? And I think when you've had in your in your in your lifetime the, the experience and the understanding and the thought processes, and then to be able to sort of form that in such a way that it's easily digestible for 
to put it together to have that time to have the teachers and and then like I say the structure and the format to then take it beyond there as well because I think the one thing that lots of teachers feel is that sort of time issue and that kind of having the space to be able to do that and I think the way you've explained it one has kind of sort of made me take a breath out which kind of relaxes you and gets the whole thing going in as well but also just knowing that you've got a you've got that friend there that's kind of going to give you that structure across a number of weeks in order to be able to do that and I think all of those things are just uh, are incredibly incredibly important and um and, and how, how long did it take to put together how was the uh, how was that process from a practical point of view um, well, it took it took about a year for it to fully form, um, because as you say, I needed to lean into all of my experiences in school, because what I wanted it to be was a book that was used rather than the book that was on the bookshelf, um, and a book to be used needs to be, you can pick up and go, and I used all of my experiences of primary teaching to know what that book looked like. You know, I've seen some good books along my time. I've had books that I've really used. And I've had books that have just sat there and gathered dust. So trying to draw all of that experience out and write it in a way that was going to give teachers the opportunity to pick up and go and yet talk about mental health, which is quite tricky and quite challenging, perceived by some teachers, was took that 12 months, really, um, but my interesting starting point was to deliberately go to ask children to name 26 things for each letter of the alphabet that they like. And irrespective of what the book was, they knew nothing about what the book was about. I just said, give me an A to Z of things that you like. And that's where we got I spy, treasure, dinosaurs, ladybirds, butterflies, face painting... And I, so that helped me to structure the story. That helped me structure each chapter. And then it took a long time to find out that curious, interesting fact, that thing that nobody knows yet until they uh, look in that book. So, you know, the Niagara Falls Bridge was basically created by a kite flying competition that was won by a 12 year old boy. You know, very few people know about that. So I was looking for these kind of quirky stories to draw everybody into the book, draw all the pupils into that text, and then have a conversation about what it feels like to be in control rather than out of control. It was a year to get the language right. It was a year to draw on my experiences in teaching, but it was a year well spent because it's getting out there um, and it's already been adopted by a mental health charity as their book club uh, book read for the summer uh, just coming. So it's resonating with folks and that was its purpose. So it was 12 months well spent, Mark. Yeah, I can imagine. And um, and you mentioned before this isn't your first book. So just give us a little kind of synopsis of um, of how you sort of woven those other books through, through your through your career as well and where they came from. Well, the Resilience Project started, as I said, when we went to Birmingham University to present the ideas of the Resilience Project and from that got a, uh, a publishing deal uh, to, talk about, to talk about resilience for teachers. And so that was Lyft. So it was, it was uh, 39 ideas, uh, one for every academic week of the year, but uh, NQT at the time, although now it's read by teachers and head teachers and the like, 
one, one a week of ideas that will give you a lift. It will give you a thing to think about. It will give you an idea. It will give you a structure. Then the second book was taking the idea that if we're feeling more resilient, do we make better decisions? If we're feeling more resilient, do we, do, do we take decisions that others would might class as risky, but yet we don't? Because we're, they're, they're kind of well-considered and well-thought-through concepts. So risk was around the idea of decision-making and resilience and how these two are interconnected and interwoven. But again, for adults, again, the metaphor leading into conversations around that. And then the third book um, is Spin, and it's around time and task management. And if you're feeling resilient, if you look after yourself, if you give yourself time, then you've got time to manage the jobs that you've got ahead of you. <laughs> and that um, time spent on looking after yourself is time well spent because you're more productive when you actually get onto the task that you need to be doing. So it's been an iterative journey um, along the way, but a fascinating journey to learn about how to engage folk, how to engage an audience, but also how to get this conversation started. Yeah, and, a, and an incredibly in, important conversation. And, and and I like the fact that it's the same conversation, but just would like to say with that slightly different spin or that slightly different focus and, and that kind of, yeah, that sort of little nudge in a slightly different way, which I think is, uh, yeah, in, interesting to, to begin with, but in, incredibly powerful as well when you start to understand how they sort of all knit together. Um, we mentioned before about, you know, teachers that have made a big impact on your life and I'm always interested especially people that are teachers is there a teacher that you remember and partly why do you remember but also how has that sort of impacted on your sort of professional idea of them being a teacher and how you've come across with it well um I think that well if I asked my parents this they would say quite categorically that it was a man called Mr Klukas um who was my English teacher um and uh you talk about relationships, Mark, and uh, he was the one that recognised that I could write, and he recognised that he just that I needed some guidance, and he offered me that guidance, and it took me to a whole new level of believing in myself that I could do this writing stuff that he was asking me to do, and my my marks jumped as a result of that, and I'm forever grateful to that man, and uh, I would love the idea to think that from his provocation I then became a published author because <laughs> I'm not sure he would have believed it or maybe he did and uh, maybe he always believed it I don't know but he connected with me and then again the kind of jump into academic writing at university um, there was a one lecturer who um, realized that I was struggling to make the kind of academic jump into into um, this level of writing and did something similar she just took me under her wing. She gave me time. It was half an hour, I reckon, of her time just to guide, it, guide me, shape, shape it, connect with me. And so I want to be those I wanted to be that teacher. I wanted to be that person that gave humanity a chance. I wanted that person to connect with others. I wanted that child to come to me. And I hope that there are, well, at least double-digit children 
out there that are now adults out there in the big wide world that would think that Mr Gumbel did some good for them or set them on the right lines or um, encourage them to be the best they could be. Um, and that is why teaching is so magical and that's why I hate the idea that so many people are walking away from teaching rather than sticking with it and recognising the power of this job when you get it right and you get relationships spot on and you can build these people up to being, well, published authors to, uh, for 40 years later. <laughs> <laughs> what advice um, were you given that made a big impact? And was there any advice you'd now give your younger self? And I guess this might be specifically in terms of sort of teachers and, and, and things which would be supportive in terms of giving people that strength to kind of to carry on into the profession and to keep going and, and that kind of thing. I think it's believing yourself, believing your instincts. And I think that teachers know the right thing to do. They can recognise the moment and they just need to seize the moment. And I think that um, I think we've lost our belief. And that's a very broad brushstroke statement. I understand that and I recognise that. But I think in general, we've lost our belief in ourselves as to we are the educationist, we're in contact, we're in that situation. Teach live. <laughs> mm -hmm. Don't teach to the PowerPoint. Don't teach to the book. Don't teach for Ofsted. Don't teach for someone who's not even there. Don't teach for the parents. Teach for the children that are in that space at that time, in that moment. Let's teach live. And I think that I was able to do that throughout my career. Um, and I, but I did recognise that it was ebbing away in, at the chalk face, ebbing away at the class teacher uh, being able to do that. Um, so that's what I would want early career teachers to do, is be yourself, trust yourself, teach life. I really like that. I heard something recently about the some amazing things that were happening in schools and, and especially senior leadership and heads being fearless in terms of, I think, talking in the same kind of way that you're mentioning now. It's about knowing what's best for the people around you, the, the, the pupils in your school, the, the colleagues and the staff in your school. And actually, when you do that wholeheartedly, everything else falls into place. You know, obviously, the marks seem to improve and the Ofsted results and, and the mark and the, the comments seem to be good and all of that but you kind of have to push a long way into that um, to do it like I say without that fear factor of kind of just having to do what you think you should do in, and understanding that but I think the way you framed it there about teaching live I really love because it then brings us again back to that kind of personal one-on-one -on -one in the moment what we're doing and it's and and I think that being fearless is is that kind of a succession of live moments one day after the next throughout an entire you know day week month year um, and at the end of that you have hopefully that community and those relationships and and that sort of lifelong learning that you're kind of sort of sort of spreading throughout your school that's gonna that's gonna make a big difference and, and I, I really just love the way you frame that there. Yeah, thank you. And I think that happy children learn. And happy children aren't happy unless you recognise the context in which they find themselves. So don't ignore the bee in the classroom. The bee's in the classroom and everyone's noticing it until you get rid of it. No one's going to be listening. If it's snowing outside, don't tell them off for looking. Embrace the moment that it's snowing outside. It doesn't happen very often. If, they, you know, if someone's upset, don't continue 
you know, you've got to deal with that and you've got to get that right and then move on. So teach live means, you know, stop pressing clicker, stop pressing the clicker to go on to the next slide. If they're not understanding it or if they're not engaging with it, change it. Change it to what you believe you should do right there. Trust yourself, trust your instincts. Your instincts are probably right. What's stopping you is that you're, you feel it's a risky decision to take. But that risk is not a real risk, it's a perceived risk. And that risk comes from you not looking after yourself. Therefore, you're feeling vulnerable and you're feeling that someone could come and get you because you haven't got psychological safety because you didn't have a nice sleep last night. You didn't look after your sleep. You forgot to have breakfast. You didn't have lunch. And now it's the afternoon. It's wet outside and you've got to do history. But let's recognise that. Let's deal with that. Let's teach live in the moment with what we've got and let's make the best of it. Fantastic. Love it. Um, and so j just to finish off, is there um, a resource that you'd like to, to share with us? And that could be uh, a book, a podcast, a video, a film, a song, anything which has sort of had a, a really big impact on your life. And I guess specifically um, in terms of your sort of teaching and your, your professional experience. Well, I think that, well, there are just so many good books out there, but I guess that's the problem, isn't it? That there are just so many of them. I mean, I think that a, a, a very powerful notion and idea for me is The Chimp Paradox by Steve Peters. And I think that transformed my understanding of who I am as a human being. And it gave me that kind of um, concept, construct of the animal brain and the human brain and how they interact. And if we don't look after our animal brain, then we're going to be feel vulnerable on all of those things. All of that language now that I come out with, you know, also naturally stemmed from that book. And I think that Steve Peters' um, articulation of a very difficult concept is something that if people don't, don't know about it, then have a good look at it. There's lots of stuff online around it, much of which is very good. Um, but the book itself works. I think it just helps us to realise that we're imperfect, vulnerable human beings. Let's stop pretending to be superheroes. Let's acknowledge that we're not going to be perfect all of the time, that we're going to be okay most of the time, and that's all right. But we're going to be okay more of the time. If we look after ourselves, we placate our chimp, and if we placate our chimp by resting it, looking after it, loving it, as if it was a pet in our head, then we were going to be making better decisions, relaxing more, less fearful of decisions that we're going to be making, less fearful of the pupils in our care, less fearful of the learning that we're about to do, and just relax into life a little bit more, knowing that you've looked after yourself, therefore you can be the best teacher that you can be. Well, I can't think of a better way to finish than in that um, those wonderful words. So, David, thank you so much for being here and sharing your story and the book and everything. So, um, just tell people where they can they can find more information. Um, well, Jessica Kingsley Publishing um, is the publisher that's, uh, that's very kindly uh, offered uh, offered me the publishing contract. Um, you can access it on Amazon. Um, and uh, that's another platform that people might be used to um, and uh, have access to. But yeah, check it out. Have a look. There's, there's kind of 
search inside features so you can have a look have a go see if it works because i can talk about it and i'm enthusiastic about it but people have got to try it haven't they to see whether it works but i urge people to try it and i'm very happy to connect with people um if they uh if they want further help in trying to get this dialogue going because i genuinely care and i generally want to get more people doing the proper catch-up curriculum which is let's get this head bit right and then the knowledge can go in afterwards absolutely and we'll, we're going to have links um to david and everything on the show notes so do click through all all of those and, and we can make sure give you the easiest way of getting in touch as well so yeah david thank you so much for being here today it's been a pleasure thank you for listening thanks for listening to the education on fire podcast for more information of each episode and to get in touch go to educationonfire.com education is not the filling of a pail but the lighting of a fire